What's that? Saul on the road, yeah. That's right. Okay? Nobody wills their conversion. Impossible. Okay? The heart set on the flesh cannot please God. So nobody can will their regeneration. That the Spirit just does when it's time. He turns on the light switch and the lights are on and now you're converted. But once you've been given a new heart, nobody is dragged kicking and screaming. We choose what we want. We always choose what we want. In fact, we must choose what we want. Otherwise, our choices wouldn't be meaningful. Okay? So the Father giving a people to the Son, these people come willingly, but they come willingly because the lights have been turned on. So they have new desires. They see new things. They see the glory of Jesus, and they want to come. But it is ultimately, prior to our choice, prior to our willingness, is the Father... uh, determining to give a people to his son to be glorified in them. And we've had some discussion on, on how that works, so we maybe won't spend more time on that right now um, unless there's more discussion. Does, does this make sense? It's a helpful recap of stuff we've covered. Okay. Then let's move on to Romans 8, verse 30. Who wants to grab that? Ron. Um, was that verse 30? Okay, there we go. Okay. So this is what's often called the golden chain of redemption. One thing follows the other. There are not every piece of the order of salvation is listed here. Uh, There's an obvious one that isn't included in this list. Which step is missing here? What's the step between justification and glorification? I hear you guys whispering. Sanctification, yeah. So that one isn't here. It's obviously part of this chain. Uh, But the order of salvation um, certainly includes these steps. It it goes further back. But glorification is the final step. And so it talks here, those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so what's important here is that God finishes with the same group he starts with. Okay, People don't drop out. One link leads to the other. And so this doesn't mean that uh, these pieces are indistinguishable. They're not. They're separate links in the chain, but it's one chain pulling in the same direction. Okay? So God uh, will see us home. If the Holy Spirit is in your heart, He is uh, guiding uh, that process till we are home, till we're glorified. And of course, once we're glorified, the fight is, is over. We've gained our final victory. Okay, and so again, discussion on this. Are we good to wrap up section one? Move on to section two. Further discussion? Going once. 
sold. Section 2. Okay, the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is truly and eternally God. He is the brightness of the Father's glory, the same in substance and equal with Him. He made the world and sustains and governs everything He has made. When the fullness of time came, He took upon Himself human nature with all the essential properties and common weaknesses of it, but without sin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit came down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. Thus he was a firstborn of a woman from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abraham and David in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, without converting one into the other or mixing them together to produce a different or blended nature. This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. That's all self-explanatory. We'll just keep driving on, right? <laughs> Doesn't require any further dissection. Okay? This is the stuff where we're dealing with uh, very fine distinctions that are actually very important so we don't move into heretical ideas. Um, uh, and so we, there is precise language to talk about these things so we don't uh, get confused. Who would have had, and, and again, don't be embarrassed, because this would have been my view growing up, but who would have had the idea that the two natures of Christ means roughly the same as if I'd get into a gorilla suit, right? So there's me on the inside, but the outside is this costume. So the, the divinity of Jesus, essentially, the way I conceived of it always was he had a human body, but his essence was purely divine. Okay, so everything inside Jesus was divine, but the physical body was human. And that was about it. Who had that conception? Or, or who has that conception? Because It kind of makes sense, right? The inside stuff is all... Uh, and by inside stuff, I would have... If someone asked me, did Jesus have kidneys and a liver? I would have said, yeah, he did. So I don't mean that there was some spiritual substance inside of him, but his personality, his soul was purely human, and only his body was natural or physical or human. Okay, that was the way I conceived it, and that's wrong. What's that? Yes, yes, his soul was purely divine, uh, and his body, his physical nature was purely human. Okay, uh, and this is saying, in accordance with the ancient creeds and confessions of the church, that that view is, is false, it's wrong. And there's been other views that have come out. Uh, one would say that Jesus was just a man, and then at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended on him, so God adopted him. Okay, that's called adoptionism. So Jesus is just a man, just like every man in this room, but then God pours his Spirit out on him, and that's how he becomes divine. And then there's another view, uh, which says that, uh, that Jesus is so divine that his human side can't actually have existence, called docetism, which just means the appearance. So Jesus was like a hologram. He looked like a, a real man, but he wasn't, because human flesh is so defiled, it's so sinful, Jesus can't possibly have been a man. Okay? So he was human-like, but he can't have been human. He was a hologram. He had heavenly flesh, so his flesh was different than mine and yours. And I've shared this before. This is going back a fair bit. Um, 
So in some of our backgrounds, what was one very prominent theologian who held this view, that Jesus was not a man? What's that? Menno Simons. Menno Simons held that Jesus was not truly man. Because Menno Simons believed that flesh in itself was so dirty, Jesus couldn't have corrupted himself by taking on true human form. He had heavenly flesh. Okay? Um, again, a distortion. Let's work through this and get the positive picture. So the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is truly and eternally God. So, we'll stop right there. How many gods are there in, in the universe? One. There's one God. Okay? How many persons in God? Three. Three persons, one essence. How does that work? Well, tough for us to know because we are kind of limited to one person per essence, right? There's one me, there's one person in me, so one person lines up with one character. That's our experience as a one-to-one, right? There's only one me inside of me. But somehow, in a way that's really too wonderful for us to understand, there's one God with three persons. And is that a contradiction? The law of contradiction says that A and non-A cannot both be true at the same time and in the same relationship. So is it a contradiction of logic to say that God is one in substance and three in person? Is that a logical contradiction? No, it's not. Why not? If we said there's three gods and one God, would that be a contradiction? And if we said there's three persons and one person, would that be a contradiction? It would be. Okay? But this isn't a contradiction because we're looking at two different things. We're saying there's one God and three persons. And that's outside of our normal experience. So it's tough for us to conceive of this, maybe impossible, but it's not a logical contradiction. The Trinity is not a logical contradiction. We're looking at two different aspects of it. And this is where people are tempted to use analogies. And what are some of the analogies we have about the Trinity? What are some? <laughs> I've actually never heard that one before. No, okay. Two and one? So we're just, we're going to add one more in there? Okay. Okay, so uh, where does that analogy fall flat? Actually, you know what, before, let's just stop there. What's another analogy you've heard for the Trinity? An egg? Yep. One egg, three parts. Yep. What else? Water, ice, and steam. Basically the same thing, but three forms. Yep. What's that? That's modalism, Patrick. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then there's also one of the three-leaf clover, right? It's one clover, but there's three leaves, so that's like the trinity. Do any of those work? Not one of them. Each one of those analogies is heretical. It's, it, they don't work. We don't have an analogy for the Trinity. No one has come up with one, which actually makes sense because who is like our God? Okay? Who's like him? Um, so the shampoo and conditioner, if you'd squeeze it, what comes out is one intermingled substance. 
There's no distinction, actually, between the, the constituent parts, right? And this is saying there is a distinction. They don't get blended together. So this isn't like stirring uh, sugar in your coffee and then you, it's indistinct. Now you just have one new substance, essentially, right? So it, it doesn't work like that. What's wrong with Caleb's egg? How is that not a picture of the Trinity? <laughs> All right. It's too expensive. How else does that not work? They're all separated from each other. And that would get you into, in church history, what's called Nestorianism, where you so separate the parts, okay? Because the egg is not the yolk and the yolk is not the shell. But here's the problem. Is the Father God? Is the Son God? Is the Spirit God? Yep. Is the Father the Son? No. Is the Spirit the Father? No. Okay. Has anyone ever seen that triangle diagram with the points? Right? Father, Son, and Spirit. And then in the middle it says God. And then there's lines that will point all of them to is. Right? So God, or Father is God. Son is God. Spirit is God. But then on the lines, on the outside of the triangle, it says is not. Okay? So the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. That's one helpful way to conceptualize it. That one actually does work. It's not really an analogy. It's more of a kind of a logical chart. Um, but the egg is, would get you also into something called partialism, and this is also the problem with the three-leaf clover, uh, is essentially then that clover is one-third, 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 right? This leaf is one-third of the clover. This leaf is one-third of the clover. This leaf is one-third of the clover. Now, is God a third, a third, a third, Father, Spirit, Son? No, he's not. Because Jesus is holy God, all by himself. And the Spirit is holy God, by himself. And the Father is holy God, by himself. So it's not partialism. This isn't a pie chart with each member of the Trinity making up one-third of the Trinity. It doesn't work like that. So you're wondering, okay, my head hurts. So none of these analogies work. That's right. Okay? Uh, and again, nobody has ever been able to successfully describe how this works. All we can do, the best we can do, at least at this point, um, is to define what doesn't work. So all the creeds about the Trinity and about Christology are basically negative statements. They're guardrails that say you can't go here because then you're going to run into this problem. And you can't go here because then you're going to run into that problem. So it's like guardrails keeping you in the bounds of biblical orthodoxy. But that's different than saying, yeah, I have full comprehension of how this works. If you have full comprehension of how this works and it all makes sense to you, you've probably accepted a heresy. And that's what makes heresies so um, appealing is because they're understandable. Right? They'll take one bit of biblical data and they'll push it all the way and it makes sense to us, but then what happens is you run into problems with other biblical data. So we'll keep fleshing that out. Questions so far? Everyone's head hurt? Caleb. Did everyone hear Caleb? 
If you try to push this too far in human language, you're always going to end up in a ditch. Okay? We, we can't explain this fully. We have to defend what the Bible says because the Bible is true. Uh, and that means we have guardrails that we say we can't go too far there, we can't go too far there. But that's different than saying somebody understands fully and finally how this works. So Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Did the second person of the Trinity have a beginning? Did Jesus exist before the virgin conception? Yes, he did. Yeah, he did. He's eternal. He's eternal. So there was never a point at which he came into existence. He's eternal. Then it goes on to say he is the brightness of the Father's glory, the same in substance and equal with him. So again, what's this? what this is saying is the Father is truly God and also the Son is truly God. And is the Son lower than the Father? No, it says here he's equal. And we, he, he is equal. The Bible says he's equal. Okay? So in their relationship with each other, they operate differently. Does Jesus submit to the will of the Father in his earthly ministry? Yes, he does. Does that make him a lesser person in the Trinity? No, it does not. And some uh, have pointed out, and I think in a limited sense we can do this. Some people push it too far. Uh, But I think in a limited sense what we can say is, if we have gender roles taught in Scripture, does that mean that women are inferior to men? Not at all. We can see inside the Trinity that you can have distinction without inferiority and superiority. A man is not smarter or better or more valuable than a woman. He's designed for something different than a woman. Okay? Man and woman are designed for different things. Okay? So what's better, a sledgehammer or a teacup? D- it depends. <laughs> what are you trying to do? Okay? Are you trying to drive a fence post into the ground? Well, then I can tell you what's more valuable. Are you trying to host somebody? Well, then I can tell you something else is more valuable. So we should never ask, when we see difference in God's creation, what's better, the sun or the moon? The water or the land? God's glorified in difference. And that actually finds its origin in God himself. God is both one and many. There's distinctions even in the Trinity. He made the world and sustains and governs everything he has made. And so notice here, the he is in reference to the sun. And does that make sense in light of John 1? That the Son is the agent by which God creates the universe? Okay, so again, the Son isn't later on in time. In the fullness of time he came, he took upon himself a human nature with all the essential properties and weaknesses of it, but without sin. And now let's move into Scripture. Who wants to take John 1? Tim. And who wants to take Galatians 4? Caitlin. John 1.14, whenever you're ready. Okay. Good. So we're all familiar with John 1, one of the marquee passages we go to when discussing the Trinity. So the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay. And glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So again, there's this 
mutual glorification between Father and Son. And then Galatians 4.4. Okay, very good. In the fullness of time. And the Greek word there is pleroma. And this is a wonderful concept. Because God has just set everything perfectly on the chessboard. Including a series of Roman emperors who built roads. So that the disciples could go across the entire Roman Empire. And a language that was common to people in the entire known world. Greek. Okay? It's not an accident of history that our Bibles are written in Greek. Greek was the common language. God's moving the pieces even for history that's not directly in the Bible. We read about Caesar Augustus in your Bibles, but there's a whole fascinating story of how we get to Caesar Augustus. And it's remarkable, actually. If you read in the book of Daniel, the prophecies that come uh, for who's going to take ownership of this little sliver of land where Jesus comes from. At first it's the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians take over, uh, and then the Medo-Persians, and then uh, the, uh, the Greeks, and then finally the Romans. Okay? Uh, and there's a whole fascinating history there that you could spend many, many times on. But God had moved all the pieces in place that world history was exactly right. It was exactly designed for this moment with a common world language, and roads that got you everywhere, and a whole system of synagogues that, Philip, uh, that Alexander the Great had developed. Okay? Every piece of it was providential from the hand of God. Everything you learn in secular history is designed to get Jesus into the story at the exact right time and in the exact right location. Okay? And again, this isn't God seeing his opportunity This is God creating his opportunity even through people who are not Christians. Okay? Even through Nebuchadnezzar. Even through Cyrus. Even through Caesar Augustus and Octavian. And it's fascinating. And Jesus comes into this. And then it says, he took on himself human nature with all the essential properties and common weaknesses of it. Okay, so now we're dealing with a whole human nature. And I'll ask someone, what is part of your human nature? Think of yourself or ourselves. What are the parts of human nature? What are elements of it? Well, I don't know if that's essential element, Because that would be a sinful desire that would have come after the fall. I'm just talking about the way we're made up. Hunger and thirst, thirst? yes. Yeah, that would have existed before the fall, right? Adam and Eve needed food and water. Yep. Rest. A personality, okay, good. We'll figure that out in a little bit. That's a key one here for this. Desire, a will. What about skin? Bones? Organs? Hair? Fingernails? Okay, all those things. Aging? What else? The need to worship? Okay, 
that's related to will and to personality, to a soul, okay? These are all true things, and I'm sure we could add more. But Jesus has all of those in human form. And this is where it gets tricky. This is where my conception of a kid was wrong, that the invisible stuff was all divine and the physical stuff was all human in Jesus. Jesus had a human soul. Jesus had a human soul. Jesus had human desires. Jesus got angry. Jesus got thirsty. Jesus got tired. He was truly man. There is nothing in any person in this room that Jesus did not possess, including a human, this is very important, a human personality and a human soul. He was truly man. Very, very day, very homo, very God and very man. Jesus had a human soul, and he must have a human soul. Why? Why is this even a theological necessity that Jesus has a human soul? Give that man a gold star. Yes, because he needed to die for the sins of humanity, and only a human can do that. Right? Um, and I've shared from the church father Gregory of Nazianzus that whatever tr- Christ does not assume, he does not heal. So if he's going to heal something, he has to assume that thing. If he's going to heal the human soul, he needs a human soul. If he's going to heal the human body, he needs a human body. If he's going to fix human desire, he needs human desire. Okay? He needs all those things. So it's not that Jesus' soul is purely just divine with a physical body, there are, in essence, two persons in Jesus. A divine person and a human person. Okay? So here, too, we have one essence and three persons in the Trinity. In Christ, we have how many men is Jesus? One. There's one Christ. Okay? And how many personalities? How many wills in Jesus? Does anyone understand well how this works? I don't. I'm just bringing the news, but I don't understand it fully. I know it's essential. I know the Bible teaches it. But how does that work that there's two wills in one man, two natures in one man? I don't know because I'm one man with one nature, just like everyone in this room is one person with one nature. But to be consistent with Scripture, we have to say Jesus is one man, two natures. Okay. So I won't ask if this makes sense. I will ask if this makes sense in light of Scripture or if we can accept this and see that it's theologically necessary. I'm not saying that you have a clear conception in your head of how this works. Does this make sense in light of Scripture? That there's two natures in Christ. Is this a new concept? That there's two natures in one man? Or is this old hat? Not new, but good to go over again. Yep. Anyone else? Is this completely new or weird? Or just something you hadn't thought about? Yeah. 
Okay, good. Did you hear what Caleb said? That it's, it's not new content, but every time we go over this stuff, he's, he's remembering a new guardrail to be careful about. Okay, and this is where ancient creeds and, and the fact that we don't have to come up with the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of Christ from scratch is actually very helpful. Because this stuff, we have our own battles in our day. But the first four or five centuries of the church were consumed with this stuff. This was what was up for debate. In our time, just because of where we are in history, we fight battles with liberalism or with sexuality. Uh, those are the kind of battles we find ourselves in. The inerrancy of Scripture, those are our battles. The early battles of the church were who was Jesus? Who was God? And so these were the things that got hammered out very early in church history. And they've given us orthodox language to talk about this um, without saying that they've mastered it. Anything else to add here? Which? Yes. That's right. So, did everyone hear Don? This is true submission. It wouldn't be hard, or as hard, for the divine nature to submit to the Father. But in Christ, a human nature submits perfectly to the Father. That's why the author of Hebrews can say he wasn't tempted in every way as you are. Because it was a human nature being tempted with sin. For the divine nature to be tempted with sin, I don't think would be very difficult. He's God. But for a human nature to be presented with food during a fast and with instant glory if you submit yourself to Satan, boy, that's pretty tough to say no to in our human experience. But it's as a human that Jesus obeyed the law of God perfectly. As a human. As a human. That's the remarkable thing. Right. To bend his knee in his thought life too. Yes. Yeah, it, it's remarkable when you think about this. Jesus had a human soul. Jesus had a human will. Jesus wanted the same things you want because he was truly man. And he said no and he said yes to all the right things for you. For you. He was tempted in every way as you are. A man overcame those challenges. Okay? He didn't get to put his thumb on the scale because he's God. A man did that for you. And this is why it's so important. When I was a kid, I always thought, well, the divinity of Christ, that's the, that's the biggie on the eye chart. That's what we really have to defend is the divinity of Christ. And we do. Because if you take away that, everything falls apart with it. But equally important is his true humanity. If you get rid of Jesus' humanity, no gospel is possible. There is no salvation for men if Jesus wasn't truly man, including the nature of a man, the soul of a man, the spirit and the will of a man. He was a man. Truly God, truly man. So am I saying he's half God and half man? Is this a man in a divine gorilla suit? Nope. No, it's not. Okay? Truly God, truly man. How does it work? I don't know. 
but I know that it works. Let's keep going to footnote 10, and then we should probably wrap it up there. Who wants to take Romans um, 8, 3? Howard? Hebrews 2? I'm going to call on Katie. I'm going to pick on my own child. Um, and then uh, for Hebrews, just read 14 through 17. And then who wants to take Hebrews 4? Burn. Okay. So go ahead. Romans 8, 3. Okay, see how this is all coming together now? He condemned sin and sinful man. And he sent Christ in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Flesh had to die. Jesus had to be truly man to die to atone for the sin that man has done, for the, for the debt that man owes to God. So heavenly flesh can't do this. Human flesh can. Okay? So far, so good? Hebrews 2. Okay, so you see that again? The humanity is essential. He has to be made like us in every way. Kidneys, fingernails, exhaustion, anger, hunger, temptation, willing, desire, a soul. In every respect, he had to become like us to be our older brother. And then lastly, Hebrews 4, burn. Amen. Okay? So again, you see, for Jesus to be a priest who can sympathize with his people, he has to actually know what it's like to be tempted, to desire something like food intensely and say no to it, despite the hunger pains, despite his stomach growling at him after a 40-day fast, and he says no, and he does that for me, and he does that for Mike, and for Clint, and for Lydia, And for Rachel, he did that for us. He is our older brother in every way as we are. Every way. We'll stop there for now. Discussion on this. Ron. Well, I, I think as a human, I don't know what, it, I've never done a 40-day fast. Um, how is God providentially overseeing that? I don't know. 
I would think it is, is, provided you have water, I would think a fast of 40 days of food would be excruciating, but possible. But what we don't know is how does the divine nature assist the human nature? That we don't know. So is there... Uh, clearly Jesus has the Holy Spirit, right? We've, we've just gone through that. Um, at his baptism, he receives his Holy Spirit. Now, he's already triune, so in that sense, he's joined to the Holy Spirit, but his human nature has the Holy Spirit to fight temptation, to resist temptation, the same way me and you do. How is the Holy Spirit assisting him in his fast? I, I don't know. But Jesus' body was not a different kind of body. I would think if me or you were 40 days without food, but we had water, we'd be alive, but probably not feeling too good. And I'd probably say I have an advantage over you on a 40-day fast. Because <laughs> my body can store, has stored a bit ahead of time. I'm thinking of tomorrow when I eat a second bowl of ice cream. But I, yeah, so to some degree, I don't know, but I, I'd say it physically has to be possible because Jesus' physical body isn't different than ours, right? Like, if you cut him, he bleeds. After two weeks, okay. Interesting, yeah. So, I, again, I don't know... I don't know exactly how the Spirit would have assisted him if that was almost a miraculous fast. And Jesus does miraculous things. But, but I would say it was his body truly experiencing hunger and saying no to food in that, in that time. Anything else? Vern? Yeah, absolutely. So if you didn't hear Vern, he's essentially saying these things we can't really comprehend. And so trusting, having faith in, in what the Bible says is, has to enter the picture here. And you're absolutely right. Some people, the only caution on the other side I would put up is some people hide behind faith and go to mystery immediately without dealing first with the biblical data, right? So some people are tempted to punt on the first down. And I think what we'd want to say, no, let's put our back into it for four downs or three, whichever you prefer. Uh, but at the end, we're not going to resolve this in a way that our heads wrap around. We're trusting in a God who is bigger than us. But we, ha- we still have to say true things if the Bible says that. And I don't think you're disagreeing with that. But, but at a certain point, this is just too wonderful for us, and we do receive it by faith. Yeah, Mr. Weeb. Does it make any difference? 
Okay. Mr. Weeb has just asked who we address when we pray. Does it make a difference? There's one God we're addressing. So which person are we addressing, right? How would we answer that? Yeah, and that would be how I'd answer that. I wouldn't be fussy if someone prays to Jesus. God hears that prayer, clearly. I don't think he's limited by how we address him. But I think the biblical example is in the Lord's Prayer, our Father. So we address the Father, we address the King, but we have access because of the Son. So we come to the Father through the Son, and that's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus isn't that we say in the name of Jesus, amen, but that we're praying according to the will of the Son. So if you want to picture this like in a throne room scene, the Father is too majestic for us to approach on our own. So the Son escorts us into His Father's presence, protects us, gives us our pass, our access to the Father, and then because He is our advocate in front of the Father, we have permission to pray to, to the Father, and the Spirit carries those prayers to Him. So I would say... We pray to the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But if somebody prays to Jesus, God hears that prayer. I wouldn't want to discourage someone that they have to use perfect language. But but that's how I would answer that. I don't know if that makes sense. Okay, anything else? Then let's bring it in for a landing. I'll close in prayer and then we can go enjoy some coffee. Father God, I want to thank you this morning that you are too big for us. You are too wonderful. Lord, and I pray that as we discuss these things, we want to say yes and amen to everything that your word says and be firmly committed to it and to never compromise, to proclaim it boldly. And yet at the same time, Lord, the deeper we get into this, the more we see how majestic and how glorious and how wonderful you are. You are too wonderful for words. Lord, and I pray that the takeaway for each of us this morning would be to be humbled, to stand in reverent awe of who you are. This is too wonderful for us. Lord, and yet you have condescended. You sent your Son in the form of a man to heal every part of us, body, soul, will, desire, every last part you have healed through your Son. Lord, and I pray that we would gladly submit ourselves to that. I pray that we would be humbled I pray that we would also at the same time be lifted up and encouraged that you have done this for us. You have adopted us into your family and we have access to you through your son, through the perfect mediator of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray also that you'd give us a a spirit of focus and of reverence that as we prepare for corporate worship that we would lay aside our distractions and be wholly focused on you and, uh, and your word this morning. Through song, through prayer, through the way we fellowship and through your word. Pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.